Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss market events while also consuming alcohol of the beer variety most of the time. My name is Boai Shoshan and as ever I'm joined by Sam Volkering. Now Sam, how have you been getting on? It's been, uh, we are recording this a little later into the weekend than we normally would. So we are uh, sort of a couple of days uh, sort of behind schedule, I suppose. And we're all drinking different beers this time rather than uh, all, all uniform. But how have you been getting on and what kind of market events have you been looking at? Uh, I've been very well. Uh, yeah, a little delayed in today's broadcast, but uh, that, that's okay. These things happen from time to time, but we shall press on uh, for the 18th episode which is very very exciting i've yeah. i've been consuming a lot of beer i'm not gonna lie over the weekend i yeah, uh, i decided i decided on friday night to do an Oktoberfest at home uh for oh, me nice. and the and the wife um as 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 you 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 know before we started recording this but um that meant pulling out all stops Oktoberfest related the old blue and white checkered tablecloth homemade schnitzels uh and of course stains of beer Paulina Oktoberfest beer. Um, so, mm. so I've I've drunk a lot of Paulina beer over the weekend. Paulina, I like the. Uh, <laughs> I've I've heard that that brewery, uh, you know, pronounced quite a few times. I think Paulana was the uh, was how uh, I heard it last time. But Paulina works as well. Better than Paul. I, I honestly have no idea what it is. I I think Paulina sounds better than Paulina. Um. <laughs> Paulana though. Paulana. Paulana. Paulina, important. yeah, probably Paulina is probably the correct pronunciation. But Paulina, I don't know. I, do you know? So, like, my dad's name is Paul, and so when I see P A U L together, my instant reaction is Paul. So it's like Paul yeah. and Paul Anna, yeah. Paul Paulina, Paul Anna, yeah. <laughs> Paul yeah, Anna maybe. I mean, it tastes, it tastes good. So uh, you know, no complaints there. Yeah, no. So it's uh, it's been a, a mad consumption, and now obviously uh, a couple more. And we are drinking different beers uh, today because of our uh, last last order and delivery hiccup, uh, which caused a delay for an episode. So, so t- we we have we te- technically we're testing four beers, albeit two each. Um, mm. And so, in, in absence of uh, forgetting to to say what we are drinking, which we have done a couple of times recently. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna kick this off and let everyone know that my first beer is uh, the Evolve, which is a contemporary red ale uh, from Mad Squirrel. Uh, it's a it's a funky looking uh, label with like a, a a Mad Squirrel face, like a silhouette, but it looks like it's on top of the tube map or a tube style map all in sort of red and white um cool looking can black can with the red label really like it suitable for vegans it's a uh it's reasonably light on actually it's 4.5 percent abv um but a uh a sort of traditional red ale so well it says contemporary red but it, it also says traditional on there uh somewhere i think or no indigenous heritage style red ale take take that what what was its actual name i know it's uh you know the the squirrel one but what's the evolve 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 Hmm. by mad squirrel unhinged beers uh and it's uh it's a pretty good job to start off with um certainly got that uh ready amber color to it um couldn't see couldn't can't see through it but it uh it's definitely got a malty but but fruity tinge to it mm. uh from the outset so uh that's the one i'm starting off with today how about yourself 
Uh, I am drinking a, uh, I went to, I was in Burton-upon-Trent yesterday. Uh, they have uh, a couple of nice beer shops there. And one of them is called Brews of the World, uh, which is a very nice little yes. outfit. They've got some, uh, yeah, they've got some good, uh, good beers in there. And this one's from there. This one's actually made in Burton-upon-Trent. This Ooh. is the Heritage Brewery Company. Uh, and this is called Victoria Pale Ale. It's apparently a special edition, but it's uh, quite mild, so 3.8%. And I'm always a sucker for a nice picture of an old ship on the front of a beer. <laughs> uh, so I had to buy this one. Uh, and Victoria Pale Ale, you know, it's got sort of, the, uh, sort of a throwback to, you know, the old, you know, great British spirit, I suppose. And, uh, you know, it's very sort of understated, uh, light but full flavoured with a pleasant mellow finish and a rich golden colour. And it contains yeast sediment. I always like it when beers have those because, you know, so it could always be a surprise and it could just explode in your face when you're uh, when you're opening it up. Uh, but yeah, brewed in Burton-upon-Trent. Um, now, is yeah, um, Burton-upon-Trent, Burton isn't that, that's quite renowned as a as a sort of uh, epicentre of beer in the in the UK, Yeah, correct. Yeah, so there's still um, there's still a job. Well, just in the centre. I mean, I'm sure there's more than just one sort of uh, one node there. But I mean, there's a gigantic Coors uh, brewery there, um, nice. and there's uh, I imagine there's, there's more there's more as well. I think you know, Marston's probably has a has a brewery up there too. I would yeah, I think, I think yeah, I think you're cool. I think that's correct. Yeah, um, but no, it's a yeah, it's a, an interesting town. I mean, obviously, rundown definitely. Uh, you know, it's it's not it's not what it was. Lots of very beautiful Georgian architecture that uh, you know could probably use a little uh, little bit of polish. But it's um, no, I, I really liked it there. It seemed like a seemed like a nice place, all things considered. Yeah, well, it definitely must uh, must be something uh, in the water. I would imagine if it is it is well known for being a, a, a place of many brews and breweries. Um, yeah. But yeah, so <laughs> switching on to to market events, I suppose uh, mm -hmm. that's what we. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I, I forgot forgot about forgot about that. No, I uh, I in terms of uh, you know you are drinking a red a red ale, uh, which are a very distinctive flavour. But uh, in terms of red mm. and uh, you know red markets, of course, I've seen uh, have, there has been a bit of that uh, recently. What did you make of the sudden fa flash crash in Amazon the other day? Uh, that was really quite uh, quite spectacular. How uh, suddenly the ass fell out of the Amazon market, considering how well the stock has been doing in recent months. Yeah, you know what? It's it's one of these weird things uh, when you start to see this kind of thing happen in these large tech stocks. So we've been we've said for some time, right, that the multiples and valuations that these things are trading at uh, is a it's a bit bonkers, right? Like that's not underplaying uh, the quality of of some of these businesses. Like like Amazon is. Is is like no other business that's ever existed on the face of the earth. You could compare it to a whole bunch of giant, you know, companies from the past that you know were kings of the stock market and you know were trading as you know the biggest companies of all time. You know, the, some of the big oil companies in the past, or some, you know, big shipping companies, or you could go all the way back to almost probably the, the what is it, the East India Company or something like that in terms of how much size it encapsulates but amazon is just one of those companies where i it's it's hard right because you, you look at its valuations now and how much money it makes and what it trades at and you think and you can't help but think it is overvalued but then you also look at their business model and you look at what they do around e-commerce transport and logistics 
cloud infrastructure. They're getting into satellite communications. Bezos has obviously got his side uh, hustle going on with some things like Blue Origin and sending rockets and reusable rockets into space, which, albeit is a separate company, you know, you, they, they would leverage, uh, I would imagine, uh, Amazon and Amazon leverage that in the future. And they just encompass almost everything you could conceptualize when it comes to what consumers need and what people, you know, how the world functions these days. And you think, you know, albeit while the, the stock is trading at a price that is far too high for the, for the money they make. And, and, and when we look at, you know, traditional earnings and, and values, I can't help but think that it's still a bloody good stock to, to own it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There are, I know, I get, I get, I do get where you're, where you're coming from with it. I mean, uh, when you're considering what they're doing and the amount of business, even if, even if it's marginal, the kind of profit they're earning, but just the yeah. size of it, and they managed to consistently grow it. Uh, it is, you know, it's quite, it's quite incredible. It was interesting. I thought your, uh, your comparison with uh, the East India Company, right? Um, I, because I saw something uh, on Twitter the other day that I thought uh, is relevant to that. It's similar. You know, uh, you know, similar comparison. Of course, there are different East India companies, but uh, you know, the Dutch East India Company was yeah. uh, one of these companies that was valued at so many trillion in inflation-adjusted terms back in the day, mm -hmm. and was comparatively even had a larger valuation than uh, Amazon does today, depending on how uh, what metrics you use. Anyway, there was um, I, some guy, some guys, a fellow called Jamie Catherwood, who's sort of a market historian, posted uh, this on Twitter, on Twitter, where you're talking about the the Tina effect that there is no alternative. Uh, acronym uh, in the stock market uh, back in 1688, uh, and this is at the time of the you know, Dutch East India Company at uh, top of its game, really real uh, titan. You know, it's almost a country unto itself, a government unto itself in terms yeah. of what it was doing. And uh, you know, the Tina effect for those listening, uh, if you're not familiar with the, the, the there is no alternative is uh, all that it means, but it just means uh, it's been used as shorthand for. Uh, you have to buy stocks. There is no alternative to buying stocks because gains elsewhere are not good enough. So, uh, and this is generally referred to as, um, well, it's generally uh, put in the context of interest rates being so low that I have to own stocks because there's no other way I'm going to make any return because I can't earn anything yeah. on bonds and I can't earn anything at the bank. Anyways, so you quote this, uh, you give this great quote from a book for, you know, from hundreds of years ago, effectively. Uh, and so this is originally 1688. And so I'll, I'll just read out this quote because I thought it was, uh, it really does make it feel like, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, we're moaning about <laughs> interest rates being really low and uh, just the incredible extremes people will go to to make returns now. So, uh, and I quote, a high price of shares causes concern to many who are not accustomed to it. But reasonable men need not be disturbed about the matter since every day the position of the East India Company becomes more splendid the state wealthier and the revenue from investments at fixed interest becomes less in as much as it is difficult to find ways of investing money. The rate of interest on ordinary loans amounts to only 3% a year. And if the creditor receives security to only two and a half percent, therefore even the wealthiest men are forced to buy stocks. And there are people who do not sell them when the prices have fallen in order to avoid a loss, but they do not sell at rising prices either to protect a gain because they do not know a more secure investment for their capital. Moreover, in this kind of investment, their funds can be recovered in the quickest possible way, since with an active state of stock exchange business, one can always have control of his money. Now, just incredible, 1688, 
<laughs> and they're just, they're just saying the exact same thing. I mean, interest rates are too low. People don't want to realize their losses on stocks, so they stay invested. It's just buy and hold. Uh, and because, uh, you know, if you want security on a loan, you get even, uh, you know, an even lower rate. Of course, they're saying two and a half and three percent, which these days might seem high. But it's the same product where the well, even the wealthiest men are forced to buy stocks as this is the only means of making returns. I thought that was, uh, you know, it was just quite remarkable. Apparently, the book is uh, Confusion de, Confu de Confusions. No idea how that's properly pronounced. <laughs> About uh, as good as my Paul in a pronunciation. A, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, it's a similar. It's a, it's just that similar dynamic where Dutch East India Company investing was the thing he did because there's no yeah. other way of making money. Uh, and I, I think yeah, it's just remarkable that just the, just in the ways that the, this is even described. Of course, it's a translation, but even the wealthiest men are forced to buy stocks, and uh, you know the the rate of interest on ordinary loans amounts to only three percent a year. You know, it's a oh. uh, really could have been written uh, much more recently than that yeah yeah i mean you look at you look at that and and you know the, the dutch east india company and all the east india companies didn't last forever and there's a valid argument to suggest that amazon won't last forever or facebook won't last forever or netflix won't last forever i it's, it's so hard to yeah, this, say it tesla might not last forever yeah, well, there you go, right? <laughs> Unbelievable, unheard of. I, right. I imagine that uh, back when um, Britain was the, uh, you know, the, the, again, to use the word, the epicenter of automobile manufacturing, yep. uh, people probably never thought that, um, what was it, MG, British Leyland, or, or the various iterations of those companies, uh, you know, when they were at their peak, probably people didn't think that Britain would cease to have a, uh, a, a thriving automobile manufacturing um, yep. industry, but it, it happens. Things cycle around and they cycle around a lot quicker than, than people expect, particularly at the time when things are absolutely swimming along wonderfully. And, and you, you look at, you look at, you know, Amazon and Apple and to, things are swimming along absolutely fantastically for these companies and for the stocks and the stock price and everyone that's been invested in them uh, or that's had uh, money in a fund that's been very heavy tech weighted, which most of them are because they, you know, encompass such a large uh, and heavy proportion of, you know, the big indices uh, out there. So, you know, it's, it's been hard to not sort of do okay. Um, if you've had a bit of a tilt to the, to the U to the U S tech tech markets, which seems to be that a lot of people have, but at the same time, <laughs> and this is, this is where, this is where it's hard to get your head around things. And this is where we, we find that we fight the eternal battle of people that are just like, you know, these tech stocks, you know, stonks just keep going up, but we know, uh, from experience, you know, from my experience, uh, investing and, and as a individual and, and then professional advice and all that sort of stuff is that over the years, these things will cycle. Um, they do not always go up, they go up, they go down, some cease to exist, some will fail. Um, and it, even when you look at a company like Amazon and you just see how entrenched in the world that they are right now, there's plenty of scope for for them to have market share taken away. And it's usually not a company that will come along and just become the new Amazon. 
it'll be, you know, companies that will come along and steal cloud infrastructure or a separate one that will come in and, you know, land in e-commerce and do e-commerce in a better way. So I'm not sure how, but maybe, you know, they will, someone will, there will be better competitors. Um, and likewise, you know, someone will come along when it comes to transport and logistics and do that in a more efficient, cost-effective way and, and become a challenger or you know, there's all, it's, 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 it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts, which is how a company like Amazon ends up not being as dominant as it is today. I don't, I don't envisage a company like it's, you struggled now to see a company that's small that could challenge them in another 20 or 30 years time, although that might exist. Um, but I think that there's probably a number of smaller competitors that can take them on at, at all different aspects that, that could threaten that, but that's hard to see um, when you just see how dominant they are. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> with, with, everything. Like, with those small competitors though, I mean, it, Amazon could just buy them. I mean, that's the thing, right? Uh, like how can, it's hard for me to imagine the creative destruction process taking place when yeah. it appears that Amazon isn't complacent. That's the issue. So for me, the, you know, the monopoly, the traditional monopoly thing fails when it's not, when your know, monopolies don't exist without government support because a monopoly becomes complacent, right? And it's simply, there is no one to compete against. There's no need to compete against anyone. So we don't become efficient anymore. The thing with the Amazon, it doesn't, appear you know i'm not a i'm not an e-commerce guy uh i'm not and i'm not you know an amazon affiliate or anything like that so i'm not working with that but it doesn't appear to me by any measure i've not seen any signal of this that amazon is becoming complacent that it's slipping that it's uh, that they are simply sitting on you know resting on their laurels and rolling in the dividends because they're not paying dividends like that you know so it doesn't appear to me that they're getting complacent and at the same time any, and as a result, the, the ability to disrupt it seems to, uh, you know, it's hard for me to imagine because Amazon mm. just has such a gigantic checkbook. They can just buy any of these guys that could yeah. threaten to rival it. So I'd like to sort of tilt it slightly and because uh, I want to know your thoughts on it. It seems to me now, uh, and this is this has changed the conversation slightly, but when it comes to antitrust litigation, yeah. and it's not specific, this isn't specific to Amazon, but if Trump gets in, as uh, you know, as we've discussed on a previous podcast, and even if he doesn't, even if it is a, even a Democrat does take the White House, what's happened with Facebook and uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, just over the last week regarding yes. suppressing this Hunter Biden story? Yeah. If Trump gets back in after this, it feel it, you know the the potential for serious retribution just for trying to suppress this story seems mm. like it will push the antitrust discussion much further down the line. And even if, even if you know, Trump does lose and we do get a Democrat uh, president, it's not like the Democrats don't want to do anything antitrust-wise either. So I wonder if, you know, we're talking about Amazon being disrupted by market forces. I'm, it feels to me more, it, there's, a, uh, you know, there's a stronger force now for antitrust, or not even antitrust, just any kind of government you know, bludgeoning of these businesses uh, than there was before. Because it feels like with, you know, Twitter and Facebook going after this, you know, trying to get this New York Post story off the, yeah. off the air, it, feel, you know, it just feels so obvious that they are in these positions of power where they can control information flows and that they are willing to do so for political ends. Uh, it just feels really hard for me to not see that there's going to be some kind of retribution for that in the future. 
Yeah, look, I think I, I, you're right. And they've shot themselves in the foot with this whole Hunter Biden situation because they have taken I, I, I saw Twitter's line of argument as to why it happened. And they were saying that it breached a number of their guidelines around uh, an, an image that was um, fake, that was that was that had been doctored. But the the image was clearly faked and doctored as part of the actual article. So it's kind of like almost like a meme basically. Um, And then at the same time they said um, uh, because the, because the information had come from a hacked device or supposed to have come from a hacked device, it breached their, um, the information around sourcing from hacked things. And which is interesting because there's a lot of, stuff that they allow WikiLeaks to publish. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat hypocritical in that sense. So there's a lot of things that they said and then that they happily do with other things. So you're right. I, I, there's definitely an element of censorship happening in that sense. When it comes to, so in doing that, they've put themselves just in the firing line um, right. for, all, for, for antitrust and for um, much, you know, the much harder ruling fist of authority to come down on them. And that's their own fault. Um, and that's their own hubris and it's, you know, their own uh, power thirst that's got them in trouble there. So there's no sympathy for me on that, that respect. When it comes to antitrust and breaking up some of these bigger companies, uh, I, I don't necessarily see that as being the greatest outcome. I, what, it's kind of like, um, you know, there are those, those weird sci-fi movies where you kind of like, you, you cut the beast in half and then two beasts just come at you instead of the one. And then you cut them all in half again. And then all of a sudden you've got a thousand beasts just coming at you every, you know, it can't be destroyed. All you're doing is multiplying the strength of it by, by slicing it in half. And that's, yeah, that's how I sort of envisage uh, this, this happening is that you could t- you know, you could try and take a part, split a company like Amazon into AWS, into the e-commerce, into whatever, and it just gives them probably even more scope and flexibility because you're right. Like you said before, they're not complacent. They don't just sit on their laurels. These, these are companies that have come from nothing to be what they are. And they've done it, you know, against, I'm sure a lot of pushback and a lot of competition. Um, so they've, they've, they know how to fight and scrap and scrape their way to the top. And you don't get the feeling that they're just going to sit by and let that happen. But at the same time, that's not always necessarily their decision to make. Um, you know, I, there could be there could be and there will be challenges in that space. And a company like Amazon or Apple or you know these very heavily cash laden companies could just buy them out. But in order to buy out competitors, you need the competitor to agree to a to a sale as well. And I and I think that. That the there's enough probably, I don't know, op, maybe optimism in my view that, that a lot of these companies wouldn't sell, and I know you know it's interesting as well that sometimes these bigger companies do pass up or look over opportunities because they do start to suffer from their own, um, I guess, ego. Uh, there's you know there's that great story about when uh, Blockbuster had a chance to buy Netflix, um, and I think I think the the price was it was in the t- tens of millions, like literally millions and, 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 and blockbuster passed on it because they were just like, nah, as if 
we're blockbuster. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and, you know, we, we know how that's played out and I can see that happening again. And it might not necessarily be Amazon. It might not necessarily be Apple, but there'll be, there'll be some of these companies that sit up there in, you know, the sort of hundred top 200 stocks on the NASDAQ in, in time, in terms of that sort of size that will, that will sort of pass up, yeah, buying or, or or acquiring companies that are great opportunities, and those companies will just go on and and absorb them the other way around. So, it 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 peaks and troughs and cycles around, and you never really know what's going. That's the great thing about, I suppose, the the modern technology world that we live in, is that to build a competitor or to build a startup, is not as hard as it used to be, um, but. Yeah, it's 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 challenging. It's hard it's hard to see these companies not being as dominant as they are now. But every time you look back through history and through different eras, yeah, they get happens wrecked. they get wrecked <laughs> at some point. Some of them, not all of them, some of them yeah, yeah. Uh, do. And I, and I just see that happening again at some point. Yeah, no, I uh, yeah yeah I'm with you on that. I hadn't really thought about that actually in context. You know when. Uh, similar to Blockbuster with Netflix, you know, there's that story with Yahoo and uh, and uh, Facebook, right? Yes. They passed out a big buyout, buyout opportunity. You know, and look at it, we're always, when we're looking back on it, you know, when you think about Blockbuster, we're looking back on it uh, and thinking of block, Blockbuster as the business, that, the business model that failed, when of course at the time it wasn't. You know, at the time that they could have made that acquisition, Blockbuster was, you know, this great innovative company that was dominating yeah. the place. Uh, and similarly with Yahoo, we look, but we think back on Yahoo now as, oh my God, what the hell happened, guys? How did you screw up this? You know, this you had such a platform, such, uh, yeah, you know, you had such position in the market, and you managed to just destroy this, destroy wealth and destroy an opportunity. But at the time, of course. Yahoo was like, oh, well, uh, Facebook, maybe maybe we'll try our own version of Facebook or something, you know, and they passed it up. And so maybe I hadn't made that, I hadn't thought of that, thinking of uh, what if Amazon just decides, actually, we're not going to buy one of these guys because they're not Amazon, you know, they're not us, they don't have Bezos at the helm, they've not yeah. got the spirit and the drive that we have and everything that they do will be able to do better but yeah maybe you know what i wonder that's a, it's a great idea i think it's quite a compelling idea what is that what is that business that is going to get that's right. up that yeah. really stat eventually just stabs them all in the back so well, that's yeah. that, and that's the hard part right it's is is you know when when netflix was 50 a 50 million dollar company most people probably didn't give it a time of day because it was a small 50 million dollar company and you know it was challenging the giant might of blockbuster um these 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 companies are there you never really know you you can get a good idea in hindsight's obviously way easier to figure it out but they they they're out there they're always out there and it's the tricky part and that's the part that you know that's why well i love what i do and is is just to try and, and and pull the covers off those ones that are maybe the ones that 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 will do it and like you say, they're, they're out there it is it's 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 out there in the creek with the with the the silver pan shuffling yep. through the dirt looking for those nuggets they're out there we know they're out there <laughs> you just got to be persistent with it <laughs> Yeah, I think we should uh, we should review our first beer before we uh, proceed on to our uh, on to our second. Sam, what would you make of the uh, Evolve by what was it? Is it 
it's not is it bad squirrel or evil squirrel? mad mad squirrel mad squirrel mad squirrel so it's uh i'm just trying to find where the actual hertfordshire hertfordshire mad squirrel um like i like that i i like that a lot. i wasn't i wasn't mm, I, w- I wasn't sure to start with um it was because I, I know it, ruby a ruby a red uh ale does have a very distinct taste to it um yeah. but it, it it didn't it wasn't you know it wasn't overly heavy at 4.5 percent. you know you can easily drink a few of those and and not feel too bad from it i really enjoyed that it did it did start to get a little bit more fruity uh on the nose and in the on the tongue as i kept drinking it um it got better uh, the more i actually had um and i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it to be to be honest by the end of it um i would i would give that i think i'd give that a b plus for my oh, for my liking yeah yeah for the victoria pale ale uh, i would say very smooth going down um nothing uh, it is it does taste like a, a classic pale ale it doesn't try to do anything crazy but it's not really trying to do anything crazy so that that's fine too it tasted very nice uh, very smooth i'd probably give this i would similarly give this a b plus doesn't uh, you know it does what it does and it does it does it well there's nothing not trying anything crazy but it's uh, but no it's fine it's uh, yeah i'd give that a b or b plus that is the victoria pale ale Apparently it's a special edition, but uh, Ooh, yeah, special I'm not, edition. Not, not sure <laughs> what the special bit is. Um, and the capitalized vegetarian, which is interesting. Uh, or maybe maybe you're meant to do that. But anyway, uh, on to our second one, Sam. What is uh, what, what are you right? Doing? Well, this one's this one's a little bit more uh, ex- well. I did say exciting. I'm not say the other one wasn't exciting, but this is. I'm drinking one. Uh, it is called uh, Vitman. That is. A, that is correct pronunciation. It, it's uh, Wittmann, but it is clearly the German uh, influence here. So Wittmann uh, by the Overtone uh, Brewing Co. And this, there we go. This is a Belgian style ale with the juice and rind of blood oranges and Indian coriander to produce a spicy, fresh, aromatic beer. It is 5%. ABV. It is a funky, uh, psychedelic orange can. Uh, there's a lot going on here. This obviously, you know, the orange with the sort of pink is definitely a, 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 um, a nod to the blood oranges and, uh, yeah, a Belgian Vit beer, um, with a bit of the old blood orange in it. So I'm, I'm a bit excited about this. This could be, this could be very interesting indeed. That sounds wild. Coriander. Yeah, it's going to be uh, pretty flavoursome, I reckon. Uh, on uh, on the side, I am drinking uh, Empire Pale Ale. Uh, this is also made in Burton. Uh, so this is brewed and bottled at Burton Bridge Brewery, Triple B. So really, we should we should be uh, you know, we should be really <laughs> a big fan of this. They're Reverend. obviously already going for the Triple B rating, which is uh, a very honourable pursuit. Uh, brewed in Burton upon Trent. And uh, Empire Pale Ale. Uh, it's got a very old school label, I must say, uh, going for something, uh, yeah, they're definitely harking back to a different time. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, they really aren't, they're not holding back here. Uh, so it's got a classic uh, picture of a, uh, a British officer. And we've got, wherever Victorian men served in the empire, the pale ales of Burton were alongside them. Light in color, strong and heavily hopped, to survive long journeys over sea and land, the beers help to preserve social life after sunset. 
This brew is a recreation of those famous ales that should equally uh, that should equally soothe and sustain you after a hard day in the urban jungle. Well, that's quite a uh, yeah, quite a quite a mandate that this one's got. Man, the quote is for every climate. So maybe this would even help in Australia, right, Sam? Well, you'd hope so. I just took a sip of mine, and my eyes are watering. That's <laughs> that, that is that's got that's got some. Woo, that's that is like that's soury blood or it's sharp that's bitey i call the big one bitey <laughs> Woo. i feel that you know how sometimes when you like get that taggy feeling right in the back of your uh, jaw yeah that's uh that just that that i got that this is gonna be fun <laughs> how about what was it five percent you said that one? it was a it's five percent but the taste is just it's just knocked my block off that is that is insane i this could, um, this could, this could be something special. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. I've just seen that in the, in the webcam. Can you describe the color of that for people listening? That looks like a bloody smoothie. It looks it, like it a is, carrot juice smoothie. You know what? That's exactly what it looks like. It's, it's, it is so orange. It is like someone has blended carrot. I, I, every now and then, my wife and I will go through this phase where we just love to have smoothies in the morning for breakfast. And uh, we're sort of in that phase at the moment. And I always used to love doing that one. It was like carrot and ginger uh, and fresh orange. And that's exactly what it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but blood orange and the, the, the spicy coriander. Which is just, I mean, some of the, you know what, some of these um, beer um, brewers, uh, they do do some pretty funky stuff uh, with the beers. And I I love it because, you know, beer can can take on a, a a lot of people just think beer is very, um, I guess, monotone style alcohol in that sense that it's just, you know, one beer is all beer. But the variety that you can get, um, you know, I'm looking at our our list of, of beers and the ratings we've given them. And there's, you know, this is our 18th episode. So you can figure out that's a lot of beers that we've gone through different ones pretty much every time. You know, we haven't come back to the same beer, even accidentally uh, in the 18 episodes we've been doing this. And it's just so great to see that it's such an industry uh, here in the UK that, 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 that continues to thrive. And I hope that, you know, my hope is that, out, once we come out at the end of uh, this situation, this crisis, this economic situation that's happening, um, that these these companies can continue to thrive because it it makes life interesting and enjoyable. Uh, yeah, on the um, on the topic of making life interesting and enjoyable, I think I'm going to tell everybody I've started a new health kick and I'm going for uh, carrot juice smoothies in the morning. And I'm just going to yeah. drink that. I'm just going to walk around with a glass of that, and no one will be able to tell the difference. It's uh, like good strike it'll, it'll make you see better at night is that a true thing by the way if you is it is it carrots if you eat lots of carrots you see better at night or did i just make that up well no no i mean that's what they say right i i, I remember hearing a while back uh that and this could be complete bullshit as well but i remember hearing a while back that um pilots in the israeli air force uh, are given rations of blueberries as blueberries for some reason help eyesight uh, but that you know, I that could someone could have just been pulling my leg. I mean, it's very specific: Israeli Air Force and blueberries. But uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe. Actually, you know what? So speaking of uh, Air Force, I don't know if you saw 
Uh, just last week, Rolls-Royce uh, and BAE Systems unveiled their next-generation Strike Fighter. I think so is this the, the Tempest prototype? The Tempest, yeah, the Tempest prototype. And I was reading up on it, and some of the tech that like BAE Systems is developing for it, um, oh, I can't remember the exact word that they used, but it was, it was something like psych. Um, uh, it was like literally technology that that trapped the the pilot's brain waves and and eyes, uh, and 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 sort of integrated that movement in with the targeting system, so that it was kind of like as soon as you would look from side to side, you would be able to target enemy aircraft. And that would that would all link in with the with the tempests um, uh, uh, aviation systems. I mean, it's it's just it's bonkers that when you start to look at the technology that are in in um, in fighter planes. I mean, and and that, that that some of that technology, believe it or not, filters out into the real world. I remember not that long ago. So you know how um, you know when you look at a at a strike fighter, you will notice that they have these you know sort of glass canopies they're not actually glass i think they're some sort of composite um perspexy thing or whatever um nonetheless you'll notice they don't have windscreen wipers on them <laughs> so the question is is what happens to you know when it's they're flying in a storm or in the rain you know does it does it challenge the you know visibility or anything like that and obviously they are going so fast a lot of it just you know spurts out the back but at the same time i believe that they're also coated with this particular sort of nano material um and and someone can correct me if they're an aviation expert or military expert but i i read not long ago that some of the car auto manufacturers i think it was mercedes-benz actually because they love to sit on the edge of technology were looking at applying basically to their car windscreens the same technology that they use in fighter plane um cockpit covers so that effectively their future cars wouldn't need windscreen wipers yeah. because if it rained, it would just sort of roll off um, the, the, the windscreen without challenging or, or changing the visibility of the car at all. I mean, it's, it's crazy stuff. The, the development that goes into these things, like companies like Rolls or BAE or Lockheed Martin and uh, Raytheon as well. Because you know, yeah. do you remember what? Do you remember when those um, the UFOs, the the I think it was the U.S. Navy pilots saw the UFOs and they were tracking yep. those UFOs. That was all Raytheon systems that were tracking those UFOs. Yeah, it was the uh, the Praxis uh, missile that they had, the Praxis missile pod, then board the tracking device for it. Yeah, uh, was, yeah, yeah. It was some pretty cool stuff, and that was way back in like two thousand like eight or something, right? I mean, it was a, it was a yeah. while ago. That, yeah. uh, that that came from the tempest the tempest program i'm i'm very optimistic about it you know i'm not, I'm not a you know, military security expert but i uh, you know i do follow the story it is very interesting uh and it does seem like the tempest program is uh, a fair bit further on than the franco uh, german effort at creating mm. a next generation uh, fighter pilot which is very interesting the whole brexit thing uh, has put a massive spanner in the works. You've got a lot of people on uh, the security side who are saying Brexit is going to be really bad because the combined budgets that could be put towards these things uh, are, you know, are going to be smaller now. And as a result, uh, you're just going to end up with the logistics for these planes because logistics are huge. Like, you can't just fly one of these things you know, for a while and then give it an MOT every year. I mean, they require a huge <laughs> yeah. amount of 
of constant replacement and things like that, which require their own supply chains. And so if you end up with having different fighter pilots, uh, fighter jets, sorry, for different uh, air forces, that requires separate um, uh, separate supply chains and of course no interoperability between them right the parts are going to be different you can't just put you know a, a tornado part in a Eurofighter right um, but at the same time the Tempest project which does seem to be you know it does seem to be very it seems to have a lot of promise um, it does seem to be ahead of what uh, the Central Europeans are getting at and uh, there are some. There are not. There's you know some uh, some uh, operators who are looking to make some uh, you know uh, loyal wingman drones that would be able to accompany it and things like that. Uh, and you know really next generation stuff when you're talking about the the ability of the of the the pilot themselves when it comes to deploying ordnance and things like that. I'm I'm pretty optimistic. The main issue seems to be, uh, well, from what I understand is how much money the government mm. is actually going to be able to apply to the project when you consider the cost of also maintaining all the F-35s that we've bought and that we uh, have said we're going to buy in the future, which of course are also incredibly cost intensive uh, and of course are incredibly important for our relationship with the United States. So uh, if we are develop, you know, devoting so much money towards F-35s, you do wonder whether or not you're going to be able to uh, you know, really devote a massive amount of cash towards the Tempest program uh, and especially when we've got Wufloo and there's so much cash being diverted from military uh, you know, applications into you know, welfare programs ultimately and furlough schemes and things like that, whether or not the, uh, you know, whether or not the cash is ultimately going to be there, whether or not this is going to be another military project which you know, gets this great marketing, great advertising, gets everyone dreaming of the future, and, and then you know, the, the funding is slowly withdrawn as administrations go on and, uh, you know, and then... In the end, it ends up kind of being a very mediocre pro project. You see, with uh, the Americans at the moment, they're having a big issue with their the the their stealth ships that uh, were under yeah. development God knows how many years. And then when uh, you know the Obama administration came in and they were under a lot of pressure to cut military funding, huge amounts of funding for the for that program got cut. And now you've got these ships that are uh, out of date. So the radar is actually you know they couldn't actually store everything inside the vessel. Uh, to keep it uh, completely stealthy and so they had to build out more stuff which compromises the stealth and now the radar is out of date and you know just such a these programs last so many years it's hard to um and different administrations have different approaches you know i i really hope the tempest thing does does turn out to be really good and it does look like does look optimistic so far so uh, we'll have to wait and see but it will be uh, very interesting to see how it all turns out you know with the uh, when we talk about the tech and everything i saw it was a Good, uh, good presentation by an F2, well, by a, a U.S. military. Uh, he was a test pilot, so he gets access to all these planes way, way before. And there was uh, one thing on just on the the capabilities of these of these aircraft is that when an F-22, now you know this this fighter jet the Americans made that they can't export anywhere else. Uh, you know, Congress banned the export of this thing, which is a real shame because it's a great piece of kit, but. Yeah. Uh, when uh, the F-22 is, you know, is being serviced and the pilot is in it, he has to actually have his hands up the whole time. Uh, he's not allowed. He needs to show every, all of the men uh, who are working on the jet that he has nice hands on, on the controls because there's, uh, there's only one, the joy, there's a joystick, right? But it's not in between the legs. It's just to the side and it's really small and it's incredibly sensitive. So if you just move that joystick by, uh, you know, I think it's a quarter of an inch or less if it gets nudged at all. <laughs> The movement that that would then trigger from one of the tail fins is such that it could behead somebody. So oh, the Jesus. guy has to have his hands up. 
the whole time to ensure that I'm not touching the controls. I'm not going to kill anybody. And it's just wow. the, um, the, you know, the mechanical engineering in these things is just insane. Just the kind of, uh, the kind of forces that they can, they can, uh, you know, levy against, uh, you know, everything, people and against the, the environment that they're, they're just in is, is wild. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy when you, when you think about, uh, the sorts of, uh, tech that does go into it and then, even even things like composite materials, right? You know, and the different kinds of carbon fiber and carbon fiber composites that a lot of them end up with now, um, and how how quickly that sort of thing progresses, you know, it, it still might you know be you know we're talking decades for a lot of those things to actually end up in planes and have those planes in service. It's, it's one of those things, right? Is like when we talk about it, a lot of these industries, um, whether it be things like defense. Uh, aerospace um aviation uh even the automobile industry um that's another couple of examples of, of that um mining as well funnily enough the actual runway for a lot of these things for a lot of the projects that a lot of these companies work on the actual runway on these is long like a decade you know most most cut so for the automobile for in, instance by the time a car company does a concept car and then actually gets that concept car into production, the, the sort of time frame on that is anywhere from sort of five to eight years. Um, even gaming consoles as well. When you talk about next generation gaming consoles, the, the sort of general uh, runway on that is about eight, five to eight years. Um, and, and say for mines, you know, when a, when a, when a mining company has, uh, you know, a mining tenement or, or an area of, of exploration. By the time they actually find something, get the approvals, get the mine built, and then actually start digging stuff up, it's about ten years. Um, defense, but you know, we're talking about Tempest now. But by the time a Tempest actually, you know, if it goes into service, probably going to be about a decade. Um, <laughs> the F thirty five, you know, is only just starting to come into service. These things take a bloody long time. But my point with this is that while they take time, they do happen. But for, I think, for what people sort of miss a lot of the time when we talk about stuff like this or we look at stuff like this or they see stuff like this is that it might always, it might like appear to be a very long time away for it to come into fruition. But it's, it's those, that period of time before then when, you know, all it sucks in all these different industries. So you, like you say, we talk about uh, something like the Tempest. So we're talking about the construction of the actual plane itself. Then there's all the aeronautics and electronics that go into that, the composite materials that have to go into that, the different types of radar. And then there's infrastructure around what bandwidths and how that radar or how the communications link in and, and, and work between the planes and uh, base and, you know, whether they need to upgrade and, and do all those things. Same with the automobile. When you're talking about, you got to build the car. So there's the materials that go into building the car that either come from a mine and then get refined and then get put together by somebody. Um, these, these sorts of companies are like the, the, the next generation PlayStation or Xbox the the Sony's of this world, the Mercedes Benz, the the Lockheeds, these are companies that sort of take the glory. But when you look inside all of these industries in this sort of decade, rough decade sort of time frame, 
the, the, the industry that they suck in from smaller manufacturers, these OEMs, these original equipment manufacturers, they're really just assemblers almost more than they are um, plane makers or car makers or console makers. They bring in all this tech from other companies. And that's why I get so excited when I see something like the Tempest, because it's not just about that plane being made by one company. It's about like the hundred different companies that will develop the technology to go into that one project. Um, and that's why when you, when you see things like, you know, the PlayStation 5 is about to come out, which is great, but they'll be working on the PlayStation 6 and all the companies that are involved in doing that. The Tempest and all the companies that are involved in doing that. Um, the next generation of, um, you know, Mercedes uh, or, or Volkswagen Group cars that are going to be all AV with advanced driver assistance systems and automotive um, autonomous technology. The hundreds of companies that are going into that. And that's why, you know, everything that's going on now is a bit of a shit show with, with COVID and, and, and lockdowns and all this sort of negative stuff. And it's easy to get swept up in that. When you see these sorts of projects being announced in the midst of all of this, you can't help but stay positive about what's coming in the next few years. Yeah, there's uh, those incredibly capital intensive projects when there's, uh, you know, when somebody is devoted to, you could be, you know, developing a mine, for example, you know, these things take years to, to actually get online. And uh, you've got the things like Tempest, which are, of course, you know, we're looking at multi-decade things. And you know, we're talking about the, the US is generating their sort of sixth generation fighter. And they're talking about 2030s for this thing to be fielded. Yeah. It's such a long-term thing. It does, it does make you wonder. But then at the same time, you know, I mean, America's now said that they, they're going to get a, a guy on the moon again in, by 2024. And that's not very long. You know, I, I, <laughs> it's literally like tomorrow. <laughs> that's that's just next election, right? Yeah. I mean, that is that is wild. That that I, I thought it was wild when that was first announced, which was uh, which was a few years ago. But I mean, that's only four years. Like that really won't feel like a long time by the time it happens. And maybe maybe it'll be delayed. You know, especially when you if it, if you know it's a different administration, they could say, oh, yeah, well, we're not. Yeah, you know, that was their idea. We're not going to do it anymore. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the Artemis program. I mean, they're they're mm. still sticking to this twenty twenty four thing, even amid the woo flu. So it will be very interesting to see just how, how far along that gets. I think the theatrics for this. Uh, I, I really think a lot of people are not paying attention to that. But by the time it arrives, they'll be like, "Oh my god, we're actually getting someone on the moon again." Because you know, when uh, you know the last moon landings. The internet wasn't around, right? The the means of distributing information and news was completely different. You know, whoever is on there, they'll probably send a Snapchat or something from the lunar surface or something ridiculous. You know, yeah. it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be such an event, uh, and I really do think it is gonna happen because the U.S. really does want to show that they are still the the you know the preeminent superpower. We're not gonna let you know China or anyone else get on here first, and we're gonna yeah. this is the big it is the biggest flex that you know humanity has managed to dream up effectively is to get on yeah. the moon and that they're gonna do it's it gonna happen yeah it, but and, and so i think artemis uh the project artemis was started or announced uh it was either late it was late 2016 or early 2017 around or in maybe around 2017 so right. again it by 20 sort of 24 25 you're still looking at that for yeah seven seven to eight year 
sort of time frame. Again, we're sort of within that 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 rough um, sort of time zone as to how these sorts of projects now can can happen. You know what it used to take. 20 years for for these sorts of things to come to fruition but now that 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 window keeps getting shortened and shortened and shortened to be able to do that i think i mean did you see the i don't know if you saw it the other day the blue origin uh test flight of their latest uh the new shepherd the reusable rocket that blue origin has you know spacex gets a lot of coverage for their reusable rockets and they obviously did a manned mission to the international space station recently which was really cool and amazing and great uh, for everyone involved and for the world, really. Um, but Blue Origin's doing it now as well, you know, the reusable rockets with exceptional reliability. Um, and so I, I, I have no doubt that we'll, A, there'll be another person on the moon uh, by 2024. And not only that, there will be, you know, part of the Artemis project is to not just then put someone on the moon, but to actually then start to, look at uh, implementing a almost like a, a lunar, an orbiting lunar hub from which they can then leapfrog from the moon to Mars. So the idea is to get to the moon, man to moon, moon to Mars. That's, that's pretty much the big picture uh, of what they want to do. And in doing that is putting up, you know, a space, an orbiting, a, a lunar orbiting space station. Um, and, and, you know, China's building one as well. Uh, it's, it, there's a lot going on in that area that is that, is now already a couple of years into that window about that sort of eight to 10 year window. And so by sort of 2024, 2025 to the end of this decade, I think that we will start to see this acceleration in these sorts of industries, particularly space uh, and getting things into space. And again, it's not just about NASA putting a rocket up into space and then people on the moon. It's, it's all the industries it then sucks in to you know again around the avionics uh, around the construction of the the, the rockets themselves uh, the materials that need to exist um, for long periods of time in in zero gravity uh, and in the vacuum that is that is space so there's you know the materials that need to go into that even something like the, the space suits um, there's a lot that then goes into just that project alone and so yeah and it's hard to not get excited about it all and that's just getting there, right? It depends on what, yeah. what you actually want to do there becomes its own thing. Uh, so uh, in 1959, right, the, um, the US, uh, US military came up with a, with a budget estimate for how much it would cost to, uh, to run a, uh, a military base on the moon, right? So this is sort of all-inclusive cost for getting us there and actually you know, having a, a military moon base. And uh, their estimate in 1959, so this is when dollars, in theory, meant gold, if you were a government, uh, was $6 billion. Uh, that would be the, uh, you know, that would be, uh, you know, a lot, of, that was a lot of money back then. Today, inflation adjusted terms, that's $54 billion. Uh, though if you actually counted, if you actually did that in sort of gold terms, I would imagine it'd be actually a lot more than $54 billion. But just in terms of if you adjust it for uh, inflation, um, it would be they were, they were thinking of fit, what would be fifty-four billion dollars today. Now, considering the amount that the U.S. is spending here, there, and everywhere, uh, when you're hearing trillions being chucked around as in stimulus bills and the like, maybe maybe it doesn't seem like all that much money. But yeah, back then it would be an average annual cost for uh, yeah. So Project Horizon was an eight and eight and a half year program 
which they thought would cost $6 billion for that eight and a half years. So $700 million, $1959 per year. Um, and, you know, they were dreaming this up back then. I mean, that was, uh, that was peak, well, not peak Cold War, but it was deep Cold War, if you will. And you do wonder, uh, because the U.S. are very clear with the whole Space Force uh, project that they're completely yeah. fine with militarizing space again. So, you know, they were thinking of a lunar base back then. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we will see one in the future. And that, of course, if we're, as we're not used to militarizing the moon, uh, we, you know, we've spoken of all of the uh, various uh, industries that are required to get a man on the moon. What about having a military on the moon, right? Imagine the kind of uh, additional industries that are required for that. Uh, you know, uh, you, absolutely. Your imagination can go overboard with it. So you, do you know what, right, as well? So I think what a lot of people have missed, or maybe they just haven't given enough attention to it because there's so many things to give attention to these days. When China landed on the dark side of the moon, they landed their uh, lunar rover on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, was, yeah. That, was that last year or the year before or something? Year before, I think. Um, that, that, that's, that's up there. That, I think uh, that's akin to, to Sputnik. That's like, we're yep. talking about a serious show of capability to put, you know, to, to do that. Because that was a world first. No one, had, no one has done that before. That was a first. China did a space first. I can only imagine what it must have been like inside uh, the US uh, halls of government or establishment, whatever, um, when they found out that China did that before they did. They would have been like, right, this is not, good enough <laughs> and so you know the, it, 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 people say that it's not a new space race it's absolutely a new space race and it's between china and the u.s and part of it's the militarization of it and part of its communications and part of it's just a big dick swinging contest i have no doubt at all and it's going to be great because we've got the technology, we've got the companies outside of government that are willing to get involved as well. Uh, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to see some pretty wild stuff, I think, over the next few years. You know, oh, like, the, while NASA want to put someone on the moon by 2024, it's then everything on beyond that. Um, you know, they want to be doing regular flights up there and back. Um, you know, the, the getting to Mars is, is something else again. You know, the flight to Mars is six months, um, which is no sort of, you know, mean feat in its own right. So there's, you know, there's developing the things capable of doing that. Um, and so I, as well, I only found this out the other day because I've been sort of looking at it and writing about it, is the International Space Station is actually due to be decommissioned in the next yep. couple of years. Um, I think it's costing about $4 billion a year to run. Um, and they're effectively going to retire it. And from what I understand is they're going to control crash it into the Pacific ocean. Yep. Yeah. They can't, uh, is, you can't just leave it up there and uh, no, no. let it die from orbital decay. Yeah. But they're going to take it down. They're going to put something else up there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a symbol that isn't it? The international space station, which is uh, supposedly, you know, this great, uh, you know, it's a great symbol of globalization. Ultimately. I mean, you had yeah. uh, the whole thing was about getting people from different, different nationalities, all these different countries working together to maintain it in a, in a spirit of cooperation. And here we are deliberately crashing it down into the sea. You know, it does, it does say a lot, doesn't it? About what we're, what we're about, but 
Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think it is it will be very interesting to see how that sort of uh, the space competition turns out. The, uh, you know, I used to talk about a Sputnik moment and it, yeah, the, the Chinese did land on the dark side of the moon. Uh, but earlier, I think it's uh, less than a year ago now, they, uh, they finally, they, t they switched on their Baidu uh, or well, I, I don't get the I, I don't know the proper Mandarin pronunciation like many of the foreign words we've been trying to pronounce on this podcast. But <laughs> B-E-I-D-O-U, uh, their their Baidu constellation, you know, it went online this year, and that was their entirely yeah. own global total global coverage uh, satellite uh, satellite uh, constellation. So it allowed them to communicate however they like and get GPS however they like. The Chinese military and uh, you know, well, effectively, the the Chinese Communist Party can use that to communicate completely independently of using uh, GPS, global positioning system, which everyone seems to forget is is completely monopolized by the U.S. I mean, it, this was their gift to the world was GPS. You know, we don't need to, you know, the, the Italians, the the Brits, you know, we don't we don't need to contribute to the uh, the maintenance of GPS. This is something that the U.S. allows. Uh, having having built it uh, from the from the get go, but the Chinese now have their own version of it, and it does feel like a, a sort of a call to arms. You know, they, a uh, you know real invitation for for competition for who can really dominate the space, not just uh, everything. You know, the all the other planes of competition that that we think of. Space is that is a next frontier, which uh, it is. You, know, it's, you know, I mean, it's a uh, you know it's pretty intimidating, I suppose. But you know, it does create. It does bring out the best in man, so we're going to be well, able to witness some incredible feats. Right? Yeah, I, I think I think the thing that signified it most for me was the fact that even Australia decided that they would finally have their own space agency. Um, they've never had one before, and then it was like last year or something they decided to set up the Australian Space Agency. It's like if Australia's getting involved, there's something there's something going on here. <laughs> Yeah, mate, the next Ashes test should be on the moon. Wow, absolutely. I mean, that would be, uh, there'd be uh, quite a lot of sixes, I would imagine, being scored. Uh, yeah, which is, there'll just be raining cricket balls down like, <laughs> bull, like asteroids from the sky. <laughs> anyway, dude, we should probably wrap this up. What's your rating should... for your second beer? Your carrot oh, juice. I, oh, I don't know what to make of my carrot juice. You know what? I. I think if it wasn't a a a, a Belgian style vit beer, um, I think it would be better. I, I, it's it's it is it's it's almost. Yeah. Uh, I hate this term because it doesn't taste like this, but it's a bit like drinking swamp water. Um, oh dear! But not 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 from the. It's weird. It's such a weird beer. It doesn't taste like a beer. Um, it's it's got a nice. It's actually got not a bad taste, but it's. It's too for a five percent beer. It's too dense um, okay. for that. For like those flavors. For those, like yeah, man. For those flavors, it needs to be. It needs to be more like a. a, a oh God, I don't know. Almost like a some sort of sparkling beer. Uh, it's just. It's just. It's. It's too, it's too much like drinking. Yeah, like you say, like, like a carrot, a carrot smoothie. Um, which is so this is the dilemma i have is that the texture and didn't quite match the taste and uh and the density of it i'm, I'm so confused over this one i i liked it but i didn't like it but so i'm gonna give it an a plus 
it sounds like you're being quite uh, quite charitable, really. I mean, you don't, you know, you don't need to be generous. Well, it's conflicting, right? Because I did enjoy the taste, but then at some, it's what drinking it. I didn't enjoy drinking it. Hmm. it yeah. I know that's sort of contradictory, but it's 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 done my head in. <laughs> oh, so I, I think yeah, I think you are being generous, but I think I'm going to be generous with with my rating as well. So this is. Uh, this is the Burton Bridge Brewery. Uh, I, did, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but this thing was actually 7.5%. doesn't oh. taste 7.5%, I must say. Uh, and it actually tastes really damn good. This was... Whoa! Uh, this is one of the best beers I've actually had on this podcast. Empire by the Burton Bridge Brewery. A triple what? B brewery. I don't know, right? I'm going to give this one, I think I'm going <gasps> to give this one, actually, a double B <clears throat> plus. I'm going to give oh, it a double what? might actually be the highest I've actually given to any beer, uh, if memory serves. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is a fantastic yeah. beer. If, you are, if you're out there, I would highly recommend Empire Pale Ale by Burton Bridge Brewery. It's quite a distinctive taste. Uh, it does not taste like your average pale ale, that's for sure. There's a certain sweetness that comes with it, which I'm not familiar with with pale ales. Uh, but yeah, 500 mils, 7.5%. And it's very good indeed. Uh, so yeah, that'll be, that'll be my second one. Sam, any closing remarks for this podcast? Oh, I, I'm I'm astounded that, that we've got another a, a double B plus up there. We, we've not yet cracked the triple B rating, but uh, there's there's been a few to, that have gotten close. And, uh, yeah, we're wow. getting there. That's 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 just um yeah, that's fantastic. That that's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, man. I want to try it now. I've got to, I've got to get I'm gonna get myself up to Burton on Trent and get 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 some of this. Yeah, exactly. We uh, yeah, we, we do need to get keep it in line where we're both drinking the same thing. But probably uh, probably by next podcast we'll be able to get that done. Uh, but that is and that is episode eighteen of Booze Booms and Bust. If you're listening to this, I hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully, we uh, we offered something that was remotely entertaining uh, at least. Uh, but hopefully, you'll be back again with episode nineteen. But that's all from us for the moment. We'll see you then. And in the meantime, I hope you have a good one. See you later.